0: welcome back to inside personal growth this is greg voice the host of the podcast um and kristen every time i come on my shows uh, there's only really one person people to thank and that's the people out there that um that support this show and have for the last 10 years and the last 610 podcasts um today joining me from cleveland is kristen kirkpatrick she's an MSRN and ld and she and her partner, and how do you say your partner's name? Boy, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, Dr. <laughs> Ibrahim Hanone.
0: Uh, okay. Do- Dr. Ibrahim Hanone, MD. They've written this book, which is a fascinating book. And I, as I was just talking with Kristen before we got on, folks, um, I was just diagnosed with non fatty. Uh, liver disease, or I should say non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I have a vested interest in listening carefully today. So the book is called Skinny Liver, uh, Eliminate Everyday Toxins, Avoid Diabetes, Heart Disease, Excessive Weight, Increase Energy, Vitality, and Longevity. So uh, Kristen, I'm going to let my listeners know a bit about you. Um, She's got a real down-to-earth style you'll find here. Uh, Kristen's frequently invited by the media to appear and discuss a Variety of nutritional wellness-related topics. She's a regular guest on the Dr. Oz show. She also writes column for Huffington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Cleveland Clinic uh, Health Hub, contributed the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Washington Post, Fitness Today, uh, Today's Dietension, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, She began her career in Washington, D.C., lobbying for medical nutrition therapy and the American Diabetic uh, Association policy. Today, Kristen's a licensed registered dietitian in the state of Ohio, splits her time between private consulting job and her job at a nationally recognized hospital nearby. She holds a master's degree in health promotion management from American University of Washington, D.C., and a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. From George Washington University. Well, Kristen, just an honor to have you on. And I'm glad we had this time to, to do this because, you know, you speak of this as this, a silent epidemic. Um, we call it non alcoholic fatty liver disease. Just how uh, grave is the situation, um, at least in the United States? And what are the main causes of this non alcoholic fatty liver disease?
1: Sure. So, um, Greg, th- thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to be, to be talking with you today about this, and something that's clearly um, near and dear to my heart, and as, as we had talked about, near and dear to your heart as well. So, uh, the reason I start off with kind of sounding the alarm in the se- sense that this is truly a silent epidemic is because, um, number one, so many people have it without any symptoms whatsoever. So we know that uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that is exactly as it sounds, this is a fat accumulation in the liver that is not caused by alcohol, and we can get into that a little later. Um, it, it is something that has grown substantially in the past decade. And to date, we know that about a third of Americans have it, and we assume that about 60 to 80% of individuals that are obese also have the beginning stages of it. The, the problem is when you have a condition where you don't have symptoms, you tend not to know you have it or you tend not to take it seriously because you don't have those constant reminders Uh, It's different than someone who, say, has heart disease and perhaps they get chest pain. And it's that constant reminder, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with my heart. I can't let this happen. We don't have that warning signal from the liver until it progresses. And the unfortunate part of this disease is that once it does progress, it gets to an area where it really is irreversible. And instead of looking at diet and lifestyle to turn back the clock and and make your liver healthy again, you're looking at going on a liver transplant list. So although that progression does not occur in the majority of people that get this, um, it was definitely something that I saw with my patients day in and day out, and they would just come to me and say, well, you know, my doctor said I have this and I just have to lose weight, so I guess that's why I'm here. And there wasn't really any kind of worry about it. I think many people, many people don't even know where the heck the liver is, let alone what it does. And so I think that has something to do with it as well, is that people just don't realize what a vital organ this is, all the things that the liver does. And um, you know, I think the combination of that is, is really why we're seeing this, this huge increase of it, because people, I think, haven't thought to themselves, this is something we need to reverse.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I certainly hope from my own personal standpoint, that I'm not up for a, a liver transplant. I hope I've caught uh, whatever it is that I have in time. And it's interesting that, you know, we're having this discussion now. And I think that, you know, the universe sometimes brings people in your life to slap you in the face and wake you up. You, <laughs> right. use an exam- you use an example of Marie in your book. She's a 45-year-old mother who's recently diagnosed with a disease. Um, and she asks, is it bad? And the answer is yes. And then she asks, can it be reversed? And the answer is yes. What recommendations do you have for people that uh, are diagnosed to reverse the disease um, provided it's reversible and it hasn't progressed so far?
1: Sure. Um, well, the first thing I look at, uh, obviously, from my standpoint as a dietitian, is is going to be, first and foremost, their diet. Um, and, and, and not just generalities of like, oh, are you getting enough fruits and vegetables and things like that? But we know one of the big culprits here in, in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the immense amount an intense amount of sugar that we have in the American diet. So that's one of the first things I'll go with is I'll do a food diary with someone and I'll say, okay, well, he, here's places of foods we need to take out. So step one is, is taking certain foods out of the diet. So that's going to be sugar. It's going to be any kind of refined or stripped grains. Um, those are going to be the real big ones. And then after those things are taken out, then the question is, okay, now we want to add in foods that are really helpful to the liver, really make the liver strong, looking at things with a lot of phytonutrients, a lot of antioxidants, et cetera. So that's my first step. Um, obviously, I would love if people can do that in conjunction with exercise. And in an ideal, ideal world, you would, in fact, include exercise in a dietary plan. But I can tell you, Greg, anecdotally from seeing hundreds of patients where I work, that many people will come in and they'll say, I'm not ready to do exercise yet. I'll get there. I just can't think about it. I can't make so many changes at once. And so my advice is always change the diet first. Um, It's Mm -hmm. much more predictable of weight loss. And uh, it, it it has such an impact. Exercise does as well. And we've seen plenty of studies with that. But um, I look at diet first, exercise second, and then all the other things that come along with that. So getting enough sleep and being able to manage your stress, all those other things that are are, are really involved in it. But we're really talking about an overhaul of lifestyle. Uh, and, and, and taking some of those, what I would call poisonous and toxic, toxic foods, out of our diet and putting things in that are going to nourish our organs, all of our organs, but in, in this case, the liver.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, carbs turn to sugar, and um, I was a vegetarian or still am for uh, the last 18 years. Um, how does the liver take such a beating? From sugar, I mean we mm. talk about insulin resistance, um, we talk about a lot of things, but you know we'll get into the parts about the toxins and the foods themselves and the chemicals. but you know, just from sugar itself, why is it taking such a beating?
1: Well there's a few reasons. Um, you know number one, um, sugar is or, or, or rather the liver is uh, the only organ can, that can metabolize fructose. Um, so that's that's kind of the first thing. So for many years, if you look at the research early on in this disease, you know, fructose was kind of the bad guy all over the place. Every study was saying, oh, it's, you know, it's soda that's causing it, and it's high fructose corn syrup. And in a lot of ways, yes, of course, um, those things do lead to this condition. But it's it's not just fructose. Um The liver processes nutrients of all kinds, so from all of our macronutrients, our proteins, our fats, our carbs, everything like that. Um, It has to metabolize vitamins, and and it, it does play a role in the digestive process, which a lot of people are surprised to hear. With sugar in particular, though, when you have an overload of sugar um, and you need to basically uh, take sugar and turn it into energy, the liver a lot of times will turn it into fat. It's an actual process that occurs. Um, And and that's sometimes when we see the overload, especially of it in the diet, how we start then seeing these fat droplets in the hepatocytes, uh, the, the cells in our liver start to develop fat as well. So that's kind of, um, you know, they all often look at liver, non-alcoholic liver disease as a, as a multi-hit condition. And so it's kind of the first hit is really kind of this huge delve of, of getting sugar and the carbs, as you had mentioned, things that are really impacting your insulin and your blood sugar that is overriding and overwhelming the liver and its ability to be able to convert them to energy. So it instead converts them to fat.
0: Yeah, and then it gets deposited there, and and you know, I don't think my average listener out there today who either is having symptoms or isn't having it, um, you know, they're thinking about it. They don't they don't look at it. And usually, it's diagnosed through an ultrasound. But people really don't think about getting an ultrasound, like in my case, until there's some kind of pain. What other tests, including blood tests, can one have? to actually recognize this disease. And what are the markers that they need to look for? Because, you know, I'm not certain that a lot of these doctors out there um, that are truly, you know, just taking these standard panels of tests um, really are, are doing us much good.
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually it's interesting. I mean, really, what you're looking for in the initial phases, in conjunction with your physician, of course, is um, looking at some of the liver markers that are very classic um, with the diagnosis, and this would come before an ultrasound usually. So specifically, AST and ALT. Typically, you will um, not always, but a lot of times, you will see that on a complete metabolic panel, which. If, if you're someone who, and, and, and of course we all should be doing this, right? Um, if you're someone who goes to see a primary care physician every year for your yearly checkup, um, many primary care physicians will just run a general complete metabolic panel. And so if liver enzymes are involved in that and those enzymes are then elevated, it's a sign of inflammation in the liver. With many physicians, if they then take other things that are going on with your health, let's say you're overweight or obese, let's say you have type 2 diabetes, for example, um, many physicians will then say most likely you probably have some fat in the liver, which is causing these elevated liver enzymes, and go through the protocols of trying to look at the lifestyle management. Some doctors will, of course, and, and it looks, sounds like this is the case for you as well, Greg, um, will go ahead and do an actual ultrasound that can actually see where you have fat droplets and fat accumulation in the liver. And that's really kind of um, one of the gold standards in the diagnostic area of this. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you're, if you never go to see a doctor and you're overweight and you have no symptoms, the chances of you having it are high, and the chances of you doing something about it because you know you have it are low, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So in some ways it does look at the very, the, the kind of the empowerment of being able to go to our doctor every year to have a primary care appointment Um, even if you don't feel bad, right? I think a lot of people, we don't go to the doctor because we feel fine, right? And so there's certain things that we don't know are going on until we have some blood tests. So the blood tests are really the primary source followed by the the ultrasound.
0: Well, yeah, and I think there's uh, just... I'm just going to encourage people because, you know, here I am a statistic at this point, um, to basically make sure you run those panels. And I'm speaking to everybody out there because, you know, as uh, Kristen has said, this is silent epidemic. And I believe that it's probably worse than it really is. Um, you know, it, we we talk about it, the the gut health, right? And I've been following a gut diet, drinking kombucha and taking all that. You mentioned that an unhealthy balance of bacteria in our gut um, is it can do harm to the liver as well. What can people do in your estimation to improve their gut health um, because this affects not only their liver, but their heart and the rest of their organs as well?
1: Right, absolutely. So that's a great question, um, Greg. There's so so much evidence now, and it's been really kind of growing in the past uh, three years, looking at our gut microbiota, um, looking at the diversity of microbes in the gut, and um, really how that impacts a whole host of human disease. Fatty liver disease, we know, is one of them. So one of the, the first thing I usually tell my patients is, when I look at their diet, to try and get more fermented foods. Um, and so that would be things like tempeh. Tempeh is probably my favorite fermented food, and that's uh, fermented tofu. So tempeh would be an example. Miso would be an example. Sauerkraut, pickles. Uh, You mentioned kombucha. Kombucha would be an example as well. I love the fermented foods, and I think 95% of the time we can always get what we need in our diet through food. But I'm actually a lot of times a lot more of a fan of a supplemental route for probiotics. And the reason for that is because, number one, perhaps you don't get a fermented food every single day in your diet. I mean, for many people, it's kind of, it's out there, right? Not, not for everyone, but mm-hmm. for some people, I mean, not everyone's walking around with kombucha all day or, or eating miso soup. So it's not commonplace for um, the general population the way other things like, like white bread are. Um, So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that uh, food, the the probiotics in food and probiotics in anything really has live microorganisms. And so anything that is alive will be killed with heat. So if you are heating a food or you're doing something to the food that impacts the, the temperature of it, you could in fact kill those healthy microbes. So I think that's why I'm a fan of the supplemental route, Uh, because it's something you could take every day. I often will tell my patients to um, change brands every three to four months. You know, And if if that's too much, even every six months would be okay as well. And that's just to get more diversity. So uh, again, what we're looking at in all of these studies is the diverseness of the colonies in our gut and how that does impact things like fatty liver disease. So if you're taking a certain brand of probiotics, And and it's a good brand and you're getting at least 10 billion species and things of that nature. Um, If you change brands six months down the road, you might get a few more colonies and more diversity that you perhaps wouldn't have gotten with the first one. So um, I think that's such a huge thing. I often recommend it
0: so, uh are you recommending too that maybe people in that are maybe concerned having a lot of diarrhea and consistency um in their stools uh have their stools checked um for this, or I mean do you know
1: yeah wh- i mean what, we we what actually do, do that. Yeah, we do that sometimes um, with with the physicians that I work with at the, the hospital that I'm at. Um, we will look at things of that nature. A lot of times what that leads to is looking at specific digestive enzymes, though, and like taking digestive enzymes to the mix. Um, mm-hmm. If someone's having truly chronic diarrhea and things of that nature, a lot of times we'll ask them to see uh, a GI specialist or a hepatologist, like, like Dr. Hanone, who I worked with uh, before they start a probiotic regimen, um, if it 's something that 's short term, so for example, we, you know we 've seen just so many studies looking at probiotics for individuals that have diarrhea from antibiotic use so that 's a very like mm-hmm. that 's a very clear cut i 'm on antibiotics i 'm now getting diarrhea. There are very specific probiotics and very specific species that we know can help to improve gut health during that time, during the course of the antibiotics. So if it's short-term and it's something kind of, um, you know, really out of the norm, I think the supplements can help. I don't think at that point we would start testing feces. If it starts to get into more long-term and there's a, a ton of digestive issues, um, I'm not a physician, but I have seen the physicians that I work with uh, run some tests where they actually do tests to look at what's in the feces.
0: Interesting, Let's get advice. Now, one of the things that we're all pretty aware of today, obviously, are the toxins that enter our liver from food, from chemicals, from sprays on the foods, um, and going organic. I mean, I've I've been on an organic diet for, for, it seems like, forever. What can we do to protect ourselves from these excessive toxins, um, the, the toxins that are damaging our liver? And that isn't just for people who are buying non-organic, that's really for everybody because there's lots of toxins. You mentioned them, household cleaners, um, yep. kind of things we work with in our garage, all kinds of things.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think the first thing is is really kind of understanding what they actually are and and not downplaying that. So I think that um, as, as simple as it sounds, I mean, I, I know when I was doing the research on this area, um it was, It was. It was. It just seemed so, like, so obvious. But it was something that even I hadn't thought of before. But looking at certain things that we use, solvents, uh, things of that nature. You mentioned the garage, Greg, and so there, there tends to be tons of stuff in a mechanic's garage that we can also find at the drugstore. Um, that many of us have. And so anything that that has a warning on it probably has some sort of toxin that is not going to do well uh, if you ingest it, you inhale it, it goes through your skin, whatever that may be, right? I mean, those warnings are there for a reason. Um, so the first is right. just really, again, the empowerment of knowledge and educating yourself on, you know, what, what does this item actually have and do I really need it? I mean, do I need this heavy-duty item or can I use something that's a little um, less heavy-duty like lemon and water or vinegar, I mean, something basic. Right. Um, so that's, that's right. the first thing um and then it's not just the garage right i mean there's there's obviously household chemicals um if, you know, like things that are used to uh produce certain things like fibers and pesticides and and things of that nature um spot cleaning agents uh typically used in dry cleaning or a big one as well uh you mentioned specifically going organic so one of the things we did look at is the, the use of pesticides and um whether that has an impact so I mean, we think it does based on the, the research. And one of the lists that I provided in the book was the environmental working group's dirty dozen list, which I love. And I feel like every year in February when the new list comes out, it's like the Super Bowl for dietitians because we're just, we're so excited to see, okay, is there something new on the list, or are we going to see apples at the top this year? Will it be strawberries? But, you know, I, I, I really do encourage people to look at that list because I think that many people, um, any of my patients will come to me and say, I can't do organic. I can't afford it. I I, I just don't know what to do. So should I just not worry about it? And I'll often say, well, if you can only do 12, here are the 12 fruits and vegetables that should be organic, right? Um, Mm -hmm. If you can do everything organic, great. That's wonderful. But if you can't, I think that Um, those 12 are really pinnacle in what you want to avoid in terms of toxins because the dirty dozen list is a list that shows the things that have the most pesticides and herbicides and the ones that are the most absorbed. So, it is important to, to to look at those things and if we can, try and absorb them. I mean, try it, Try and uh, prevent them from going into our body. Um, this is true for everyone, but especially for someone who, who has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or other liver conditions, once we start seeing the fat accumulation in the liver or we start seeing inflammation or fibrosis, Um, we know that the liver is starting to struggle to be able to do its job. And one of the main jobs of the liver is to detoxify. So whether it's a medication or it's a pesticide or something, when something comes, or alcohol is a great example, when something comes into our body and the body views it as a poison, there is only one organ that knows what to do with it. So when that one organ is not able to convert it into other substrates and get it out of the body, um, there's more likelihood that those things can build up in the body. And then you can see further consequences from some of those um, choices. So that's, I think, yeah, why. A, yeah.
0: No, it's a, it's a trickle down effect kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. the liver performs so many functions for the body. Um, you know, w- one of the signs I had in particular is the the guy said I was low on potassium. I said low on potassium. I don't, I don't get that, so puts me on a potassium supplement. So, you know, you know, you you get when you get those kind of things, you begin to understand that you know something's going on, right? So, right. Um, you know, now in your section on the book, you talk about reclaiming the kitchen, and you mentioned ten items that we can do such as eliminating white foods, and and you said breakfast is not an option. Can you tell us about some of the other items to reclaim the kitchen? Because, you know, really much of what you said about the exercise part was harder to change than the actual eating part. So obviously this is going to start in the kitchen.
1: Yeah, this is going to start in the kitchen. Um, and this is actually, this was one of my um, favorite chapters to write because it really followed the kind of down-to-earth basic information I try to give to my patients that people, most people are able to follow. So, um, for example, I tell a lot of my patients, and I, I have it here in the book, to upgrade their macronutrients. Um, I just did a presentation last night where that's all I talked about was how do you upgrade your macronutrients. And in this specific one, um, this presentation, it was specifically about carbohydrates. So we talked a little little bit about carbs and white carbs in particular and how they harm the liver. But if you look at some of the healthy carbs out there, so let's take a whole wheat pasta, for example. Um, my goal in in this upgrading type of mechanism is to try and get carbs that have a lot more fiber and a lot more protein. So anytime we eat, we want to make sure we're getting as much bang for our nutritional buck and we are fueling ourselves as best as possible. So instead of having that whole wheat pasta, for example, if we swapped for a bean-based pasta, uh, we would get like so much more fiber, meaning we're going to be fuller longer. We're going to actually digest less carbohydrate, and so much more protein. So that's just an example. And I have other examples in the book that talk about kind of what are some of those upgrades that, that you can do. Um, the other is that, that I love is to eat until you're no longer hungry, That's a concept most of us don't follow. Uh, Most of us will eat until we feel fullness. And for us, fullness implies that the meal is done, we're done eating, and I can put the fork down, right? Um, But really, Mm -hmm. if you look at our digestive hormones and you look at how long it takes for leptin to be secreted to tell us to stop eating, most people go much further beyond that. So with my patients, and, and of course I talk about it in the book, I'm very big on, you really, there's really no point in the day where you should feel hungry. I mean, where you should feel full. I mean, there really isn't. There's, the feeling of fullness is completely wasted. It means that you've overfueled. You've eaten more than you needed to for whatever reason. And, And it could be as simple as, well, it tasted good. And it could be as complex as I got into a fight with my wife and I'm suiting myself with food, right? I mean, everyone has their reasons. But if you really kind of look at hunger in a different way and eat until you don't feel hunger, um, you'd be surprised how much little you can, you can live on and sustain. Um, so that, that's another thing. And then other things like, you know, trying to, to get things, foods that have less than six ingredients. And that's, again, a push to get foods that are more whole food based and things of that nature. So um, I recommend a lot of swaps in the book, uh, what I call smart swaps. Um, and then of course, like, you know, the, the actual kitchen makeover. So how you set up your refrigerator and, um, you know, things like getting vegetables and fruits ready ahead of time and, and how how you put things in your fridge in, in terms of how things are viewed. So if, if someone gives you cake, well, I hope you throw it out on the way home from a party, but if you don't, you should put it in the back of your fridge and it could be in an opaque container um, as opposed to a clear container in the front of your fridge. So just little things like that. Um, we've great, got a lot of ideas. Yeah. A lot of research um, mm-hmm. out of Cornell by Dr. Wanstink on that. So it's really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a it's it's a fascinating subject. Whenever you're trying to change habits and behaviors, um, and small ones, one step at a time, right? And I think you 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 talk about that. You know, you say that you know really it is. You've got to take one little small step at a time. And you state that insulin resistance and the presence of fat on the liver are going to go hand in hand. Um, you state that exercise, which you said, is is a big part of the solution. What type of exercise and how much weight loss for somebody in your book who's got a BMI of over 30 uh, because you many of the people in your book had BMIs over over 30 that you were telling yeah. the story.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, for first of all, what type of exercise? I mean, if you're someone who doesn't exercise, then like my first answer is anything. I mean, just move, right? Anything. Just start getting more Walk. movement. That's really yeah. the first answer. Um, if you look at the the research, though, and you look at insulin resistance, um, patients with type 2 diabetes, which, again, go hand in hand, um, there's some really interesting studies looking at um, short bouts of intensive exercise. Really interesting stuff. So basically if you're Mm -hmm. like, if you walk and let's say you take a one hour walk, then maybe every three or four minutes you sprint for 30 seconds. So short bouts of exercise that we know really helps with insulin sensitivity. That's one suggestion. Also, looking at timing of exercise. So again, um, some of the studies that looked at people with insulin resistance and actually doing exercise um, after a meal, um, and, and obviously after you've digested, that helps sometimes with insulin sensitivity. In terms of weight loss, um, you know the general recommendations are if you lose 10% of your body weight. Um, then things that are higher, like your your hemoglobin A1c, which is a marker of your blood sugar, a three month marker, uh, cholesterol, things of that nature. Those things will all tend to go down. Um, you know, for someone with a BMI of 30, which you know, if you go if you've gone from 29 to 30, now you've gone from overweight to obese. Um, I, you know, I typically would would say like 10% is what you want to to, to aim for. So if you're, uh, 250 pounds, for example, a lot of times I will start with very small increments and I'll say, okay, let's think about losing 15 pounds in the next two, three months. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely, and, and it's, it really does kind of, uh, vary. I mean, I've seen some patients that will lose less than 10% and they see an impact on their liver enzymes. I have some patients that will lose, fifteen percent and they're not they've they've gone lower but they're not as low as their doctor would like them. So we're all different in terms of that. But I think if you think about it in the most simple terms possible, simply moving and simply being able to drop pounds, it's like a chicken and an egg approach, right? I mean, regardless of how you do it, that is going to improve how your liver and your insulin are reacting because Number one, you don't have as much to carry around, and that makes a big difference, how much work you're, you're putting on your body to be able to do that. And number two, some of these very sensitive markers um, are improved. So my advice is, is small goals. Um, if you're someone who needs to lose 100 pounds and you come to me and say, well, my goal is 100 pounds, It's too much, and and no one can wrap their head around that. So let's change the goal around. Let's say, okay, well, how about, you know, can we work on 10 pounds in the next two months? I think that's really doable. Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about the next 10 pounds after that.
0: Great advice. Incremental small portions to the bigger goal, which is always what it takes. You have to take those smaller steps in between. Well, Kristen, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and speaking with my listeners about your new book called Skinny Liver, a proven program to prevent reverse the new silent epidemic, fatty liver disease. Um, again, uh, for my listeners, you can get this book at any of your major booksellers, uh, Amazon, I'm sure, download in a Kindle version. Um, so the book's out there, endorsed by Dr. Mutter. Um, the author of Grain Brain and who has actually um, spoken for a group of mine before that I got him to come and speak to. Mark Hyman um, and Dr. Joss Axel all have endorsed this book. Highly recommend it. Um, Whether you think you have it or not, uh, Kristen's got some great diets in there, some great recommendations, um, a great way to actually not only just slim up, but take better care of your liver. Um, anything you, I, I know we will be putting on the blog entry, Kristen, uh, the link to, uh, Kristen's website. And for all of you who are listening, it's Kristen Kirkpatrick and that's K I R K P A T R I C K. And it's Kristen K R I S T I N. So it's Kristen Kirkpatrick.com. It's where you can learn more about her, her speaking engagements, her consulting, um, and any media that, uh, she's got, um, Anything else you want to leave our listeners with, uh, Kristen?
1: You know, I think um, the, the only thing I'll, I'll leave the listeners with is with is with this, that you don't have to be overweight to have this. So if you pick up the book and you pick it up because your diet's not that great, this is still going to help you. Um, whether you have it or not, or whether you even don't want to be tested or not, um, this is going to help improve anyone's diet for sure.
0: I I agree with you. Wholeheartedly, 100%. You know, she says at her website that uh, 80 million individuals in the United States now have this disease. So, um, and again, it is very silent, folks. I speak from experience. It's not something you know you've got until maybe someday you have pain or you go in and you get that AST, ALT liver panel done and it's elevated and the doctor tells you uh, we need to do an ultrasound. So, Kristen, you are a relief and a light to the world. So, continue your work. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on Inside Personal Growth.
1: Thank you. It's been an honor.